Hey everyone, and welcome to episode four of On My Mind. This episode marks the end of Mental Health Awareness Week in the UK, and I wanted to share with you my own mental health challenges. I'll be talking in detail about my depression of two years ago, how I came through that, and how I currently manage my mental health. All, of course, to get people talking and end the unnecessary stigma. I think that's enough of an intro, so let's get started. So yes, welcome everyone to episode four of On My Mind. Um, As I said, we're going to be talking about my personal mental health challenges. It's something I'm quite passionate about because it helps end the stigma. That's what I'm doing it for. That's why I believe that speaking out and owning our own mental health can be a really empowering experience. And it's not for everyone. I appreciate that there is a stigma that still exists, Um, but I feel like... I want to play my part in helping end that. And I guess that kind of brings me on to my my first point, really, which is about, well, why is there a stigma around mental health? And I was thinking about when I was at school and people would break limbs. You know, invariably there was that one kid that broke their wrist or their ankle or whatever. And they'd come in the next day and it would be put in a cast and whatever. And we'd actually go up and sign it. You know, you'd put your get well signature on there or whatever or... Um, some phallic uh, object that some kid would put on there as it was at school you know we'd actually make a joke about it and we'd be very encouraging and people would celebrate the fact that they'd they'd got this injury in in some sense Um, and yet when it comes to uh, mental health when we're older or, or any mental health it's like why don't we talk about it why is it so so hidden why is it such a thing that we we we've stigmatized and you know, I really go around this one. I really try and think about what is it? Why why don't we talk about it so openly? Why is why aren't people sort of talking about it as much as they talk about having got a common cold or if they'd um you know, sprain their ankle running or something, you know, why why aren't we talking about it in in a matter of fact fashion? And I guess the conclusion that I come to is that perhaps it's because we don't understand it. Perhaps it's because it's invisible. And if it's invisible, it could happen to us as well. And that's the only logical conclusion that I can come to, because if you see someone who's physically injured, you can almost empathise with them, you can say all the supportive words, you can talk about it, you can be open about it, because ultimately you know that someone's broken ankle or broken arm is not automatically going to mean that you've got a broken ankle or a broken arm. But perhaps there's an argument to be said that we all recognise at some degree that we've got mental health challenges you know we we live in a, a stressful environment in the west um we are constantly put under pressure we have jobs that stretch us we have expectations that are placed upon us by society so maybe there's something about if we acknowledge the the mental health in somebody else we somehow have to acknowledge the mental health in ourselves and that can be a scary place um, why can it be a scary place? Because because we don't understand the mind. You know, there's some really interesting research coming out at the moment about depression and the causes of depression. And I might speak a little bit about that later on. But, you know, in my opinion, we need to start treating these as uh, conditions and illnesses and things that we can learn from. 
and not talking about them, you know, as if they're some sort of mystical thing that's, you know, shh, we, we need to talk about this behind closed doors. You know, there's there's something for me about um, the whole suffering in silence thing. You know, anything like anxiety and depression, it feeds on that. You know, it feeds on not only um, my experience of both those conditions are that they have a uh, a message hidden within them that says don't tell anyone because they won't want to listen. That's the depression, you know, and the anxiety one is don't tell anyone because they'll think you're crazy. So, you know, we've got these mental health conditions and I'm just speaking about two that I've battled with. You know, there are a, a whole plethora out there. But when I speak to people about their mental health challenges, they'll often say to me, you know, I just feel like I can't talk about it. And actually, when in not talking about it, the the mental health challenge persists. You know, that's certainly my experience about it. So, yeah, that's the purpose of the podcast, and and I'm I'm still fascinated why we don't talk about it. And you know, I will put out this podcast, and I will undoubtedly get people who will message me. I often do when I put out posts about mental health, and they they share with me their stories and they talk about their own battles with various challenges. And you know, I always feel a deep sense of sadness because. Uh, they often say, you know, but I can't tell anyone about this. I don't feel like I can talk about it publicly. Um, I'm just too, you know, too fearful to do that. So this is why I do these podcasts. That's what I'm. That's what I'm about. I want to lift the lid on mental health. Um, and in the future, I'm going to be um, doing interviews with people who have got various um, backstories, and they're going to come on the podcast and share it. So yeah, that's the plan. But let's talk about me, um, because that's what the purpose of this podcast was. Two years ago, almost to the day, actually, I was diagnosed with depression. And, you know, looking back, it wasn't really a surprise. Um, the diagnosis to me, I remember at the time going into the doctor's surgery and I'd printed off a list from the NHS website of all of the symptoms of depression. And bear in mind at this point as well, I was into my training as a as a therapist. So I was aware, but I somehow the depression had hidden itself from me so when I went through the list and I went to the doctors and I got diagnosed it was so like so obvious but depression had hidden itself from me and convinced me that I was just you know I wasn't depressed I was just this was my life now it's hard to articulate but it it, it had hidden itself from me until I went to the doctors and, and got that diagnosis and I remember leaving the doctor's surgery with a prescription for antidepressants thinking wow, okay, that's that's happened to me now. And I never saw myself as somebody that would be depressed. I would say that I'd always, um, looking back, I've probably always been susceptible to low mood. Um, that's certainly been a feature of my life. But depression was just not something that I, I would identify with. And I have to be honest, you know, I had a little bit of stigma myself. I carried that around with me. And, you know, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that because I did have maybe not necessarily a stigma, but all, I had a view of what depression was. And I remember meeting people who were depressed and they'd tell me about their struggles. And there was still a little voice in my head that would be like, surely you can just wake yourself up out of this. Surely you can just get out of bed and do something. And it wasn't until I was crippled with depression that actually I realized realized what it meant, you know, what it meant for me and what it possibly meant for others. So yeah, I got the diagnosis and I got the antidepressants and then I went for a um, a therapy session a few days afterwards and something 
um, stopped me from taking the medication straight away. I'd read a lot about side effects and dependency, and I am certainly not um, anti-medication. I have a mantra with any of the healing work that I do, which is if it works, it works, and different things work for different people. And I know many people that have used medication, and you know it's saved lives. But there was something for me about wanting to explore other options. I just had a sense that. Um, I didn't need to medicate straight away and I went to um, my therapist and we talked about it and he he very um, uh, articulately reflected back to me the previous sort of 18 months that had led up to that point and he essentially said you know you have ended a relationship you have had your business defrauded and it's been you know taken from you and you've had to move out of your home because you can't afford it anymore. And now um, you are finding yourself in this situation where you're depressed. And he just sort of put it across as in like, I'm not surprised. So that for me was uh, probably a a very, very important therapy session because it allowed me to find some compassion for myself. And that for me was probably probably the biggest um, antidepressant ever was finding that shred of compassion but it wasn't it wasn't a big amount of, of compassion it was a it was a shred and that's because I had chronically low self-esteem you know leading up to that point I look back at my life and my whole life I had chased materialism and status and I had gone for more bigger and better and I talk about this when I do my public talks that I was just so lost, you know. Um, nothing could ever satisfy the yearning that I had inside of me to be fulfilled. So I remember being sort of 17, 18, I got my first job and I wasn't happy with the job title. So I pushed harder and I got a promotion and then I moved companies and then I moved another company and eventually set up my own business with my ex-partner so that I could become a director because that was a fancy title. Um, and I got cars on finance. And I think by my early 20s, I was in way over £15,000 worth of debt um, because I'd accumulated all these material things to make me feel worthy you know I thought that if I had more that if my house was the best furnished house on the street and had the best gardens and all that kind of stuff that somehow that would give me the happiness that I was craving so uh, obviously that was not that was not true that was not how my life was was going to be fulfilled but I kept going because you know look at the culture that we're in you know, look at the part of um you know, the economic background, you know, capitalism relies on us spending more and more every year. So there has to be more things to buy every year. And also the way, the quickest way that you can get people to buy something is to make them feel that they're not enough without it or that they're going to be disconnected from their peers if they don't have it because they're not going to be cool enough or whatever. So, you know, I, I could look back at that now and see that I was part of a system that was not serving me, but I didn't know any different. So when everything started to collapse, my therapist was saying, I think you've got a choice now. You can either rebuild the way that you've always rebuilt, which is to go for bigger, go for more, go for better and try and fulfill yourself that way. But it doesn't sound like that's really worked for you. Or you can face up to yourself. 
and you can do some soul searching and figure out you know what it is you really want to do with your life and what's really going to give you a sense of purpose and I say that it was a um, you know that therapy session is a cornerstone of my new life because it really got me to reflect and I went away traveling for six months I was incredibly fortunate to be able to be with my depression um, and I didn't have the pressures of having to hold down a job or look after a family or, you know, um, pay a mortgage or that kind of stuff. I took out a loan and I went traveling. Um, it was stressful at times, but there was a lot of alone time. And I could, you know, as I've shared this week on my social media, you know, there were times when it was crashingly low and there were times when I was quite high. But in those lows, I made a commitment to myself that I would listen to what depression was trying to teach me. And as I traveled through Canada, America and South America and Southeast Asia, I got to meet so many different people from so many different backgrounds and kind of start to understand, like, what was it that made people happy? And you know what? The biggest surprise that actually wasn't a surprise was that the people with less were happier. The people in South America who lived in effectively huts and the people in Southeast Asia, you know, they had they had barely anything, but they had gratitude for what they did have, which I've come to realize is a huge part of, you know, uh, good mental health is practicing gratitude. And they didn't have all this pressure on them to be more, to go for bigger, to go for better, because their economies fundamentally don't push them in that direction. So, yeah, I... I want to talk a little bit about the actual experience of depression because, you know, I, I started to understand what had got me there. And, you know, the fact that I didn't value myself meant that I would do drugs, alcohol, casual sex. I didn't I didn't even value my body um, to care who I was sleeping with, really. And I didn't value it enough to not poison it with excessive alcohol every weekend and during the week. And then that became, you know, that the highs from both those things wasn't enough. So I started to do drugs and that kind of thing. And I just didn't value myself. I had no um, self-esteem or very, very low self-esteem. So these things were just a way to numb. You know, I was numbing out definitely at that point, trying to escape what I ultimately wanted to face. And I think, you know, the word depression for me is, you know, you split it up, it's depression. And I think what it did was, um, this is where I, I believe that the mind and the body are smart things, you know. I think it said, right, if you're not going to stop and learn the lessons that you need to learn, then I'm going to stop you. And my body took over and, you know, I, I couldn't run anymore. And I didn't even have the energy or the motivation to do the drugs, the alcohol or the sex anymore. I didn't have any motivation to do anything and that kind of led me into what I would call the depressed mind state, which was zero motivation and zero hope. You know, I would sit when I was traveling, you know, I'd put on the pretense. And I know that some people who are listening to this will be, you know, this isn't a term, but I'll coin it, you know, high functioning depressants. You know, they, they're they chronically depressed and they've got that feeling of emptiness inside, but they put on the face every day and they go out and they do what they have to do. Um, but there was a, a deep, deep sadness within me that was sort of ever present, really, and I could only distract myself from it, but it would keep coming back. 
And when Winston Churchill talked about, you know, his black dog, I could totally see that. Um, and, you know, that song, Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, I can see how um, people become attached to their depression because it, it almost takes on an identity. But it was there for me to teach me something. It was there to slow me down and to get me to look in the mirror and really think about, you know, what, what I was doing with my life, what I what had I done with my life and what did I need to do with it going forward. So the days with depression um, were difficult when I was in the thick of it. Um, I've got a video that I, I think I put out this week, which was to say I could intellectually understand what was happening you know I was a trainee therapist I was able to read about depression I understood you know not necessarily neurobiologically what was happening but I understood the concept of depression and and the symptoms and that kind of thing but the thing that that fascinated me most and distressed me the most was I would be in bed some days and I would be having a conversation with myself that went along the lines of Adam you know that this is depression, you know that you can put one foot in front of the other, you can step out of this bed and you can go about your day. But the depression was so convincing and it took over my body. You know, it, it literally stopped my legs from working. I couldn't do it. I would sit in hostels and hotels around the country and think, I can't, I can't do it. Um, And then the inner critic would come out, you know, the critical voice of, you know, well, you're a waste of space, you know, you're you're shit, you're not good enough, you're never going to be good enough, this is your life now, you might as well resign yourself to the fact that this is it, it's never going to get any better, and this is what you brought on yourself, and this is what you're worth, you know, you're you're getting your comeuppance was, was sort of the theme of my depression, it was, it was vile. You know, it was my worst enemy and yet it had become a friend in a weird way. You know, there was some comfort in those days when I was depressed because I didn't have to face up to thinking about much of a future. You know, it was it was a wallowing, but not not self-pity. You know, I think it's easy to look from the outside in on someone who's suffering with depression and think that they're self-pitying and it just wasn't that you know, trust me, if you could have got in my head at the time and listened to the the grief that I was giving myself for the state that I was in, you wouldn't want to come anywhere near that. And I'm sure that there are people are, are listening who have been in that mindset and, and know what it's like. You know, you don't need someone else giving you a hard time because you're already doing that enough to yourself. So it was hard. Um, and then I discovered that um, depression has a best mate. And that's anxiety. And the two seem to go hand in hand. So it would be, you know, I would flit between being really depressed and very sort of numb and non-emotive and switched off and tuned out to being almost the complete opposite. You know, I would be hyper vigilant. I would have palpitations in my chest and I would be thinking about, oh, my God, they're looking at me. They know that I'm depressed. They know that I'm having this panic attack or, you know, oh, God, I'm going to run out of money on this trip. I'm going to be bankrupt. I'd be catastrophizing left, right and center. And it would it looking back, the pattern would for me would be that I would have this anxiety that would surge through my body. You know, I would feel it physically. And then it was almost like when that got too much, 
the depression would come along almost like a fire blanket, you know, and it would smother the anxiety. And there would be a sense of relief, you know, oh, thanks, depression, you know, you've come and taken care of that. But then all of the negative self-talk that comes with depression would re-emerge. And so it, it would go from one form of punishment to another. And that was my life for probably six months. It was horrific. You know, there is no other way to describe it. Um, there were breakthroughs. There were moments when both those things didn't feel like they were present. And, you know, I've learned through... Um, mindfulness which some people kind of roll their eyes and say that it's all fluffy but actually the reason why mindfulness works with depression I think is because it brings you right to this very moment it brings you right to this second which is all we ever have and it was funnily enough when I was in um, when I was in Canada and I was doing some zip wiring um, and there was something about being chronically depressed and hooking yourself up to a zip wire and flying down a zip wire at 60 miles an hour um it was pretty cool actually and in that moment in that I think it was about a minute and a half that day where I was just so present so immersed in the now you know looking at all on the beautiful Rockies in Canada zipping down this line feeling a little bit of adrenaline but not in the anxious way um I just forgot everything. I forgot that I was depressed. I forgot that I'd got this chronic anxiety and I was so in the moment with it um, and they were absent. So, you know, for me, mindfulness has been an incredibly useful um, antidepressant because it there is no suffering when you're in the now. You know, most of our suffering comes from worrying about a future that hasn't happened yet or fretting about something that happened in the past. And when you've got something like anxiety or depression or both which often go together you know those two things will pull you into either of those places you know my depression would make me feel sad for what had gone before and it got me thinking about the future that I wasn't going to have and anxiety was just a hyper vigilance about all the threats that were present and all the things that could possibly happen to me if if I wasn't on this you know hyper alert status so, you know, that for me is why mindfulness uh, works. You know, different things work for different people, like I said. But you know, if it works, it works. And it definitely worked for me. It definitely worked for me. So, you know, there I was traveling, listening to depression, um, trying to listen to, trying to listen through the critical voice. You know, depression is a taskmaster, or mine was anyway. It had this critical narrative of, you're worthless, you're not good enough, that's why you're here. But if I could if I could tone down the critical voice, and this was where I used to do my journaling, and I would reason with it and say, okay, so I know you think I'm useless, depression. I know you think, like, this is my life now, but if I could ask you to be more compassionate with what you're trying to teach me, what would you say? And in that practice, and the key word there was compassion, in that practice of compassion in that moment, that's where the lessons started to reveal themselves. And I travelled through these countries looking at all the different um, cultures, all the different lifestyles that people had, and I started to realise all the things that had ultimately led me to this place. The first one was the complete lack of self-love that I had. You know, I wasn't taking care of myself physically or mentally. The second was chasing materialism, um, and status over 
the more spiritual side of me and when I talk about spiritual I don't mean religious you know that's often a confusion when I talk about spiritual I mean working on things that kind of feed the heart so you know charity work or doing something that's bigger than me working for something that's bigger than me that's not pure money driven and status driven and I realized that you know I'd not been kind to my friends I'd certainly not been kind to my partner at the time I'd asked him to put up with an awful lot of shit basically um, because I'd been so self-absorbed and you know paradoxically I realized that actually when I have too much time by myself and I'm too introspective and I'm too kind of focused on me that ego state takes me into suffering whereas if I'm out and I'm helping other people or I'm focusing on a project that's bigger than me and I don't have to think about me that somehow brings me more to the moment again it brings me into the now and when I'm in the now I'm not suffering so so when I could reason with this dialogue uh, this depressive dialogue I could see that there were lessons there and the same went for anxiety you know when I was having these huge huge panics of anxiety I would do the breathing techniques that I learned to kind of get through um, a panic attack because I had several of those and I would kind of once the once the anxiety had subsided a little bit, I'd do the same exercise. I would journal about, okay, anxiety, today you felt like the world was full of threat, but I want to do some evidence gathering and I want to do some kind of a bit of a post-mortem on the day and what it was like. And, and literally I would be, I would bring out the rational side of me to say, actually, do you know what? Even if that person in um, Thailand was looking at you and they recognize that you were having a panic attack, you're probably never going to see them again don't matter whatever so I would have a this kind of like almost treating both anxiety and depression as if they were as if they were little children within me that were hurting you know if they were little versions of Adam the younger Adam that was crying out for help and I guess on some level you know depending on what school of psychology you prescribe to maybe they were but rather than be critical back to them and try and um, punish them for punishing me I would bring out front and center would be this compassion. And I read a lot about that. Um, I read a lot of Brené Brown's books. I read a lot of blogs and it just, this word just kept coming up, compassion, compassion, compassion. And it was from that compassionate mindset that I believe I was able to start really dealing with, with some of those things. So, you know, where were we up to? Well, we're up to me kind of doing some reconciling and, Many of you will know that I then ended up in Peru where I did my psychedelic experience that I believe sort of led me out of depression. And I want to talk a little bit about that because when I when I came back from my travels and I was, you know, in inverted commas, cured of depression, um, I put a lot of that down to the psychedelic experience that I had. And since then, I would say that my view has changed a little bit because actually the things that I experienced in my psychedelic experience and for you, those of you that are scratching your heads and going what's he talking about I basically went to Peru and partook in some ayahuasca ceremonies I'm going to do a separate podcast about it at some point um, I also do public talks about it so if you want to go on my Facebook um, I'm going to release a few dates soon but but that's by the by um, essentially you, you take this psychedelic substance and you hallucinate and you have all these visions and you revisit parts of your life and 
uh, get lessons from the universe. Um, sounds quite trippy, right? Um, but actually, looking back, I came away from that having hailed it this miracle cure for depression, but I'd done a lot of the work, you know, and I'd I'd done a lot of the reflection. I'd done a lot of the, um, the hard graft leading up to that. I'd already recognized the things that were um, causing me to stay in this depressed and anxious state. And I already knew deep down what needed to change um, in order to improve my mental health. Yeah, you know, I just knew. I knew intrinsically. Um, but the ayahuasca experience, the psychedelic experience, almost confirmed that, you know, in quite a belt and braces way, but it did. It confirmed it for me. So I'm not saying that it wasn't um, an integral part of my experience. But I wouldn't want the message to be that if you're suffering with depression and anxiety, that you've got to go to Peru and do psychedelics. I just don't believe that anymore. I believe that the, you know, there are other ways talking about it, ending the stigma. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm talking to you. Is because, um, you know, I I do. I do believe that talking is the way out for so many of us who have struggled and are struggling. Um, that's why I'm a talking therapist. You know, that's why I trained in psychotherapy so that I could help people through these challenges. So it's not all about um, taking a psychedelic, but, you know, I was after the quick cure. Um, and aren't we all? You know, we live in a, a culture that wants quick results. We're conditioned to have things instantly. You know, we go on our phones, we can. You know, the other day I found out from Amazon that I can get things delivered to my front door within an hour if I want. So we're we're in this culture of now, immediate now. Um, but unfortunately, you know, mental health doesn't work like that. And just that, that compassion, that listening to yourself and understanding what it is that you need. You know, I wonder how many of us do that. I asked him um, last year, I remember asking a client, you know, what are your needs what are your needs as a person? And it was the first time they'd ever considered it. So maybe that's that's the first time you're considering it as well. What are your needs? Um, and I think, you know, I don't know. I, I'm going to start wrapping up now because it's been half an hour. But I want to I want to end on something about at the moment in our culture, we treat the individual as the person that is sick and we medicate and we do therapy and we do all those things but the message that I particularly want to open up really for a discussion is what if it's the culture that's sick because when I think about who we are you know we are loving beings we are designed for love we were never built to be in you know glass towers trading stocks or in call centers taking call after call after call and um, being managed critically by people who you know are under pressure so that they forget how to be human you know all these things you rewind a few thousand years we were just kind of like chilling out in our caves and going out and getting food and then sitting around campfires and probably having deeply spiritual rituals that nourished our soul so you know I think it's interesting that the West is the richest it's ever been, you know, the, that we are more wealthy and we have more materialistic things than we've ever had ever in our history. And yet there is a pandemic of depression. You know, the World Health Organization is calling it a pandemic. 
400 million people suffering with mental health conditions and that's diagnosed what about all the people that aren't you know are just suffering in silence so I guess the reason I say that is because for a long time I I kept it quiet and I kept it to myself because I thought this is me and I'm the one that's broken and I'm the one that's wrong and I'm the one that needs to fix me um but actually I think there's a big conversation that we need to be having as a culture as a as a as a world um to say hold on a second you know are we treating the are we treating the wrong thing here are we treating the individual when we should be treating the environment um so I'm going to end on that. That feels like a, a nice time to uh, to end. I hope that I haven't just waffled on and this hasn't been uh, useful for you. With all my podcasts, I try and speak from the heart rather than having a, a set list of things that I want to get through. But as always, your feedback is really welcome. If there's anything that you'd like to hear more of um, or if there's anything that you'd like to hear less of, then please do let me know. I'm not sensitive to feedback. This is a podcast for you guys and I want you to get the best from it. And I can only do that if you let me know what you loved and what you didn't love or what you liked and what you didn't like. Um, I think we're going to wrap it up there. Thanks for listening, guys. Thank you for listening to episode four of On My Mind. I hope you enjoyed listening to my personal story and I hope it wasn't too all over the place. I guess um, it's one of those situations where I just share from the heart and hope that it will resonate with some of you. As always, if you enjoyed the podcast, please feel free to like, comment and share. Um, Certainly if you think someone would benefit from listening to it, then let them know about it. And take care and we'll speak again soon. you're still listening that's cool um just a quick message from me to let you know that um i have to make a living um i do the podcast and i do all my online stuff for free but i also practice as a life coach counselor and public speaker so if you know anyone um that would benefit from either one of those services then please let them know about me uh, my contact details can be found online you can email me adam at mebeingadam.com Um, or follow any of my social media channels through the Me Being Adam uh, handle, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks for listening to the podcast, guys, and we'll speak again soon.